In Luke 1, we read about a priest by the name of Zechariah. He was married to Elizabeth, who was actually a close relative of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And this was a couple who loved the Lord, who feared the Lord. In fact, the scriptures say of them, they describe them as being righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all of their commandments and the statues of the Lord. Well, God had a very special plan for this godly couple. Uh, he made sure that they were going to be used by God throughout his whole redemptive plan for mankind. See, while Zechariah was serving at the temple with many other priests, his name was actually chosen. It was actually selected uh, by Lot, taken by Lot, and he, was, he had the privilege of actually going into the temple itself and offering up incense to the Lord. And while he was there, he's visited by an angel of the Lord who comes to him and tells him some unbelievable news. He tells him that he and his wife are going to have a baby and that that baby should be, or he commanded him to name him John and that that child would be a forebearer to prepare the way of the promised Messiah. Now, for, for Zechariah, this was just unbelievable news. Here's why. Because he and his wife had tried to have a baby their entire life and were not able to do it. In fact, that they had prayed to God over and over again. This was actually a, a constant source of pain for them because for the Jewish people uh, uh, and for all people, really, children are a demonstration of a blessing, of God's blessing. And so constantly through their life, they had to constantly be asking themselves the question, what is it that we did wrong that would cause God not to allow us to be able to have the joy of children? And so this was something, a burden that he constantly uh, carried, but they had given up all hope that they would have a child. They were just much too old. In fact, they say to the angel, they go, hey, we don't believe this. And the reason is, is he says, quote, he says, I am old and my wife is advanced in years. That's the politically correct way of saying, bro, she way too old for this, all right? And he says, just, she's way advanced in years. It's not going to happen. Uh, and the angel, not, not really liking the way that he's responding here, the lack of faith, and in essence tells him, he says, he, he, he puts kind of a curse on him and judges him and says, you're not going to speak again until much later, until this child is ultimately born. And so he doesn't speak from that point all the way through the, the, the birth, uh, all the way through to the birth of his child, and then eight days afterwards when his child is being circumcised, he doesn't speak at all. But on that day, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit came upon him, and he began to prophesy. Now, I don't know about you, but when I get to that point in the story, I begin to think, I bet you I know what he talked about all this time. I bet you he talks about his son. I bet you he goes around, he's got, I, I picture him with blue balloons and, and, and bubblegum cigars, handing it out to everybody saying, it's a boy, it's a boy, and he's a big one, he's eight pounds, he's 22 ounces, he's going to be a football player for sure, and look at his eyes, don't you think he's got his mom's eyes? This is what we do with the children that we have. We can't help but to talk about who they are, but what's interesting when we look at his speech here, his prophecy, he speaks very little about his son at all. That seems a little bit strange. Is it strange not to talk about your son when he's just been born and you've been waiting all this time and an angel of the Lord is the one who told you that you're going to have this child? Yes and no. Yes, it's a little bit strange if the best thing that has happened to you and the best news that you have received is that you are going to have a child. It is not strange if you received even greater news, for example, that not only is your child going to be born, but that the Savior of the world is going to be born. That good news trumps the other good news. And so what he does is he begins to explain. 
And underneath the power of the Holy Spirit, he begins to explain what this Savior will do for his people when he comes. And there are three things that we see in this text that he says this Savior will do when he's born, when he comes to the world. Three things, and I want to share those with you this morning. First of all, very simple. First of all, when he came, what would he do for his people? He would, first of all, set them free. He would set his people free. Look at verse 68, if you will. The Bible says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Right off the bat, he says, the first thing you need to know about this Savior is he's primarily coming in order to redeem his people. And what's interesting is he speaks in the past tense. He says that he visited and he redeemed his people, which is odd because he's speaking in the past tense, but these things haven't even happened yet. Savior hasn't saved his people. He hasn't even been born again. How could he do it? Indicating that he's so sure that what he say is going to happen, that he speaks of it in past tense. Oh, it's going to happen, is what he says. And he's just basically saying, hey, I'm so sure about this. Let's speak of it in the past tense. But notice what he says. He says that when he comes, he had visited. Literally, the word means to be concerned with or to look after. Now, what Zechariah is doing is he's demonstrating this extraordinary love that God has. That God doesn't love us from afar. He loves us close, in close proximity to us. He just doesn't love us but through word. He loves us in deed. And so the first act of his love is he says, he's going to come and he's actually going to be with you, which is going to demonstrate that he cares for you and that he loves you. That's the first message you need to get about his coming. My grandparents understood this truth far too much. And uh, when they were alive, I would call them. My mom would be like, you need to call your grandparents. You need to call your grandparents. Remember this? Hey, young people, call your grandparents because they're not around forever. And, and I remember calling them up and I go, hey, grandma and grandpa, uh, that, and if you're from Yuli, Mimi and Papa is what I meant. Okay, Mimi and Papa, I uh, just want to call you, tell you that I love you. I've been thinking about you. I miss you guys. And, and, and they would sit there and say, oh, it's so good to hear you. Thank you so much. We've been missing being able to talk on the phone for you. But when are you going to come visit us? When are you going to actually come and visit us? Well, Mimi and Papa, you know that everything is, is so busy. We, we're doing a lot. we got the kids. We're going to school. We're doing work. we got the church. So many things ultimately going on. But I did send you a card. Now, we know how much you love the card. And I wrote all kinds of things in there. So you be looking in your mailbox for that card. Oh, that's so wonderful. We know that we, lo- we love the cards. In fact, all of your cards are, are plastered up on our refrigerator and our freezer. And when people come, we this is from my grandson. We're so proud of him. But, but when are you going to get a chance to come and what? Come and visit with us. See, they understood that there's one type of love. There's a type of love that, that you love from afar and that you speak about love. There's a whole other type of love that is not about speech, but is demonstrated in actually being with somebody, looking after and caring them. If you're wondering just for a moment if Jesus Christ cares for you, he cares for you in the fact that he came to you. He came to visit you. And he didn't come just to talk or to play checkers. He came to redeem you and to redeem me. That's what we see here in the text of Scripture. The word redeem literally refers to the releasing of a prisoner or the liberating of a slave. In other words, he came to set his people free. Now, the question is, for what? And the reason I raise that question is because there was confusion not only in our day, but also in the day of Zechariah. 
See, many people begin to have the skewed view of this Messiah, that when he came, he would be primarily this militant king that would come and throw off the opposition and the oppression of the Roman Empire, all to be able to give his people an easier life without all the difficulties of life. It's a gospel that many, a false gospel that many are preaching today, that Jesus is good for just basically healing your physical wounds, helping your marriage, and helping your kids to be good in school and not to rebel, even though God is certainly concerned with all of those things. He's concerned with the pains of his people. That's not the primary purpose that he came to alleviate those things in the short time. He actually came to be able to set his people free. So what we find is when he's talking here, he's not talking primarily about throwing off the military or or some kind of military freedom, but he's talking about spiritual freedom. In verse 77, he says, salvation, he speaks of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of sins. So he's talking about being set not from a government, but being set free from, from, uh, from sin altogether, and specifically of that sin, of its penalty, and of its bondage. Let me explain what that means. When he came, he came to take the penalty of sin away from you and I. And, and what that, in essence, means is, is that everybody has fallen short of the glory of God. Amen. We've all messed up. We've all sinned. We've all gone and done what was right in our own eyes. We've all gone, like sheep, have all gone astray. And that deserves the judgment, the righteous judgment of God because we have rebelled against our very creator. That means that the wrath of God, the judgment of God, is storing up for you and for me on the day of judgment, that one day we'll stand before God, we will be judged. And if we remain in our sin, that judgment will weigh on us for the rest of eternity. That is bad news. The good news is that when the Savior, Jesus Christ, came, he came to take that penalty completely away so that therefore there is no condemnation in those who are in Christ Jesus. So he takes away the penalty, but he's also coming to be able to take the bondage or the propensity to sin. In other words, he didn't just come to get us out of hell. He came to get hell out of us. He came to change you and to change me. The sin that caused us to be judged before God, now what he does is he comes and he gives you and I a new nature. That old sin nature passes away, gives us a new nature that now wants to follow God, that loves God, that wants to seek him, that wants to do his will, that wants to pursue the things of God. And not only has he given me a new heart to desire those things, he's given me the power to be able to do it. Because now this very power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, dwells inside of me to give me the power to do what I once was not able to do, and that was to obey God. Now, we fall in many ways, but now at least we have the ability not to be bound by the sin and enslaved in the sin that we were once in. When Jesus Christ came, he came to deliver us from all of that. What did he deliver us from? Hebrews 9. How did he deliver us? Hebrews 9.12. He entered once and for all into the holy place, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Listen. When you're born again and you really understand Christmas, I was in my office this week and on Tuesday and I began to study this and look at this and I began to think to myself, God, because my parents, my kids are always asking, what can we get you? What can we get you for Christmas? I was like, a hug. I'll take a hug. I'll take whatever. You know, you do that as a parent because you don't want to see them spending their money. Now my wife on the other and I'm like, I want this and I want that and everything. This is what I want and everything. But the truth of the matter is you sit back for Christmas and if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and understand the purpose of Christmas, you sit there and go, I got everything I need. I got everything I need. The penalty that I deserve has going to be completely removed. 
And I'm telling you, even though I struggle in sin and many times and fall many times in many ways, I have seen victory in my life that I never had when I was lost. A victory that allows me to be able to overcome the sin that once restrained me and imprisoned me. And it's all because the Savior came. Amen? Amen. So the first thing he did is when he came, he came to set us free. Second, he came to defeat our enemies or defeat their enemies. Look at verse 69. The Bible says here, it says, God had raised up a horn of salvation. Now, guys, don't get too excited. That's not deer horns, okay? I know some of you hunters, you're all excited. Oh, man, the horn of salvation. Did you hear that, honey? We got to get out into the woods. That's the horn of salvation. No, it's not what he's referring to. The horns that he's talking to here is actually a ram, an ox, or bull horns. And the significance of those horns is in the Old Testament, they symbolize power and victory, and what's interesting here is that this, this, power, this, this horn of salvation is not something, it's actually someone. It's referring to the Savior that would end up coming into the world. He would come with power and he would come and bring victory to his people. And notice, he says here, in, he would come from the line of David. That's just simply what he means here. We know that he did because Mary uh, and Joseph were both from the line of David. And as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, meaning that all the Old Testament prophets, folks, focuses and points to who? The person of Jesus Christ, the coming of our Lord and Savior. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Here's the picture. The picture is of an army that is helplessly surrounded by their enemies. And they're helplessly surrounded. There's nothing they can do. There's nothing they can defeat themselves. They come to the end of themselves, and they know they're going to be wiped out. But then the horn of salvation shows up. This leader shows up, comes, and defeats the enemy of those people. So not only do they go and are they set free, we talked about in the first point, but now he actually defeats the enemy so that that enemy is no longer a threat to them. They're not only set free, but now they have the absolute security that they're never going to be bound again. That this, this, this army is never going to be able to kill them and take their life. He says, that's what this guy doesn't come. Now, that's what happens when the Savior comes. Now, what are these enemies? Well, for you and I, very honestly, the, sin, the, the, the enemy for us is sin, death, and the grave. But there's one joker behind all of that. Do you know who he is? He's Satan. He's a devil. And he's behind all of this, and he's doing everything he can to be able to hold captive people and to be able to put them to death. When Jesus comes, he renders them powerless and no longer is a true threat. You know, Acts 19, I love the story there. We just went through Acts, and, um, and, and I actually skipped over chapter 19, not on purpose, but I'm glad I get to come back to it right now. There's this wonderful story about the sons of Sceva. All right, that's just kind of a weird name. He's Sceva. Anyway, Sceva was a priest, a high priest during the day, and he had several sons. And his sons really were kind of blown away by the power that Paul had to cast out demons. And he was kind of looking at this, and they were like, hey, listen, let's go into the, let's go into the exorcism business. This sounds good, good side job. And we'll go around casting out demons as well. So they go to this demon-possessed man. I don't know how they knew he was demon-possessed. Sometimes I've met people that I thought might very well be demon-possessed. And, and, uh, and he goes to them, and what they do is they do the same exact thing and say the same exact thing that Paul did. They go, in essence, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of him. The problem is he doesn't come out. Instead, he starts to talk with them. That's a bad sign, by the way. 
And he turns to them and he begins to speak to them and after trying to cast them out. And he says, the, the demon says, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the Bible goes on, it says that this man with the evil spirit jumped on the sons of Sceva, mastered all of them, empowered them. He goes, and the man fled naked and wounded. Now look, I am a lover, not a fighter. You need to know that about your pastor. I've not been in a lot of fist fights in my life. I'm just not the type of guy. I'm like, okay, you're right, I'm wrong, I'm out of here. That's how, that's how I've survived all of my life. But I do know this much about fighting. If you go into the fight feeling good with your clothes on, but leave wounded and naked, you lost that fight. (laughs) And these men lost the fight. They were stripped of their clothes. But the bottom line is this, is that when Jesus Christ battled Satan, not with a sword and not with a shield and not with a spear, but on that cross by giving and laying down his very life and his blood was shed, he stripped that, that, that enemy of all of its power. Stripped it of its power. Now, it's the reason why you and I are no longer afraid. It's why the Bible says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Why? Because he took him to the woodshed. It's why you and I, at funerals, we say, oh, grave, where is your victory? Or death, where is your sting? For the believer, there's no sting. Why? Because absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. We get to be with the very one who came to save us. It's a win-win for us. So all of that has been removed, that fear. Our enemy has ultimately been defeated in every way. It's kind of like, you say, well, can he do certain things? Yeah, within God's power. Can he give us a hard time? Yeah, but he's kind of like a toothless, rabid dog, right? I mean, he can look at you and snarl at you. You don't want to be around him, and he can spit on you. You don't want that. But if he really tries to hurt you, he's just going to gum you to death, right? That's all he's going to do. Jesus Christ on that cross, through his death and the shedding of the blood, knocked the enemy's teeth out of his mouth. That's what he did on that cross. That's why we celebrate Christmas, because he not only set us free from sin, That is from the penalty and the propensity of sin, but he also saved us from our enemy. He defeated our enemy. Third thing he did. Third thing is that he canceled our debt. He canceled our debt. Look at verse 76. By the way, this is really helpful for all of you that have racked up a bunch of debt for Christmas, right? This is the point you want to listen to. So verse 76, he says this, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to the people and the forgiveness of their sins. What a beautifully correct wording here of Zechariah and the fact that he's not drawing attention to himself and he's not even drawing attention to his son. He's drawing all attention to whom? This coming Savior. That's where he draws the attention to. In fact, what he's in essence saying to his son is he says, son, um, this this is what he says to him. He says, for you will go before the face of the Lord to make ready his ways. He says, son, your purpose in life is not to draw attention to yourself. The purpose of your life is to draw attention to somebody who is greater than you, the person Jesus Christ. By the way, that is master parenting right there. If you want to really lead your, parent, your children well, let them know that they're not the center of the universe that everything doesn't revolve around them, that everything revolves around somebody far more worthy than them, their Lord and Savior. And their job is to revolve everything they do around the central figure of the person of Jesus Christ. And so here he comes to him and he says, it's not about you. Now, how is he supposed to draw attention to it? And apparently, by the way, uh, John got this message because in his public ministry, what does he say? He says, there is one that is coming after me that is far greater than me. I'm not even worthy to be able to untie his sandals. 
He says, I must decrease as he must increase. So he got that. Now, how is he to draw attention to the Savior? He says it here in verse 77. He says, by imparting to his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. The time of Zechariah was very similar to people today. And that is, during the time, the way that the Jewish people believed that they were accepted by God was doing good, was following God's law by being a good husband, by being a good church member, by being a good family member, by doing good things in the community. And they believed if we were just good enough, then they would be saved from, from, they would be saved from hell by God because of their goodness. It's much like what you think people today, if you go and share the gospel, how do they respond? Say, are you going to go to heaven? Yes, why? Because I'm a good person. It's very similar. John's job was to be able to come and say, it doesn't work that way. None of this works this way. You can't earn yourself to righteousness and to salvation with God because you can't be good enough. Why? Because you have a sin debt that you cannot pay. You can't pay for that sin debt. You owe too much. You know, I was thinking about how terrible debt is. It really truly is, as the Bible says, it's slavery. A lender is enslaved to, you know, or is, a borrower is enslaved to the lender. And the first time I really learned this was when we bought our first house. Maybe some of you can identify with this. I, um, I, I bought our first house. I think we paid like $90,000 for it or something like that. I'd love to buy a house for $90,000 now, right? I know some of you are like, my first house was $8,000. <laughs> well, it's because you are far more advanced in age than me. That's, that's, that's why it's my politically correct way of saying that. And so $90,000. But I remember the payment was, I think it was about 600 bucks. And, uh, and I remember paying the first thing. We got all these strategies of how to pay it off and what we're going to do. I paid the first 600 bucks. I got the bill back, the, the receipt. And I sat there and I go, $598 to interest, $2 to principal. Are you kidding me? And I turned to my wife. I go, we ain't never going to pay this thing off. There is no way to pay this debt off. The debt of sin is completely, is even worse than that. And the reason is, is because whatever you do and whatever you try to do never goes towards the principal. It never takes away from our sin debt. It only adds to it. I remember going to New York City, and you might remember there's a clock, and I forget exactly where it is, but it's the, it's the, it's the nation's debt clock. It's basically showing, and it's constantly moving. And these numbers are just all the time. And you're like, what in the world's up with the clock? It's like 22 trillion, I think, right now. As I'm speaking, it's 24 trillion. It just keeps going up, and it's the national debt. And when you see how fast that debt is going up, you sit back and you realize there is no possible way. People are right. We've passed the point of ever being able to repay this national debt. It's physically, economically impossible to do. This is exactly where you and I are apart from the person of Jesus Christ. We could try to do all the good we can. It never goes to the principal, never pays it off. But in the midst of that, what's worse is that sin debt keeps adding up exponentially because of what you think, what we feel, how we talk. All of those things begin to just add up to the point. But even from the beginning, there's no possible way for you and I to be able to repay any of that debt. But why we celebrate Christmas A part of why we celebrate Christmas is because when he comes, he pays away all that debt. Something that 
portion, portion of my life kept thinking, I'm, I'm going to pay this, I'm going to pay this. And I was under that bondage to try to pay and to be good and to think that if I was just good enough and did everything ultimately right and then constantly failed in it, thinking that God was going to somehow, I was going to earn his favor and that debt would just go away. And finally I heard the good news of Jesus Christ. Somebody just came with the good news and said, bro, you can't do it. But somebody can do it for you. Somebody that can pay that debt off for you completely. Wipe that bill completely clean. You ever notice how excited you get when things are paid off? You ever have just a piece of garbage car and you're paying on that thing? And the moment you pay it off, you go and wash it. You're just, you're just, this is just, this is awesome. This is just, this is just amazing. I, I love this, the greatest car that ever. Why? Because you, you, you own it. There's something about that debt that is off that causes you to be able to be freed up. Let me tell you something. When we come to, to God and we celebrate Christmas, we are celebrating the fact that when he came into the world, he paid for our sin debt. Colossians 2.13 tells us, and you who were dead in your trespasses and circumcised of, and uncircumcised of, in your flesh, because God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I gotta tell you, the hardest sermon that I preach, the one that I dread the most all year is this one. Every year, I mean, our staff is just like, oh, he's in a bad mood. It must be Christmas. Now, I love Christmas. It's just the Christmas message that's always so difficult. And here's why, here's what a pastor does inside of their head. <clears throat> the reason is, is because I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna come and I'm gonna preach, but here's what we're gonna have. We're gonna have some folks that hear this every single week and there's nothing new for them. On the other side, you're going to have some folks that come to the service, and what they want to hear about is the manger scene. They want to hear about the angels, the shepherds watching their flocks at night. They want to hear the little angels singing. They want to talk about little baby Jesus, and they'd really like to have a message about the suffering, suffering mother who had no place to be able to bring her child. And then everybody could sit there and go, man, I know what that mother feels like, and this is good, and we can all leave, and we can be all comfortable with it. But the truth of the matter is, that's not really even the whole story of Jesus coming into the earth. We can't be celebrated about all that unless we understand why it is that he came and what it is that he came to do. And what he came to do was to set you and I free, not only from the penalty of sin, but the propensity of it. I mean, the reason that he came to us is not only to set us free, but to be able to defeat the enemy that seeks to be able to destroy us so we never have to live in fear so that you and I, for the rest of our days, can live unto God without any fear. And number three, that we can rejoice like never before because we are completely dead free not because we paid it, because our Savior who promised to come paid it incomplete, amen, completely for us. And that's what Christmas, you know what I call it? When I think about that, you know what I wanna say? I wanna say amen, but even more, I wanna say Merry Christmas to all, amen? Now, for some of you, let me just look at this. Look at these last verses, last verses, 78. He says, and because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Now he's speaking of this one to come as a sunrise. Now notice this, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Here's two parts. One day, if you're born again, one day you were in that same darkness. Do you remember that? You thought you had life all figured out? You thought the meaning of life, 
He thought it was about being a good person. He thought it was about being successful. You were in darkness. You were in bondage to sin. One day, God moved in his mercy on you, and you were born again, and you came out of darkness, and you came into the light, and you saw that Jesus was not a reason just to be able to get off during Christmas time and just for a holiday. You realized that this Jesus was your very Savior come to save you. So we have one side that looks at it that way. We have another side that maybe that light just hasn't turned on for you yet. And maybe you're still in darkness. And maybe you sit back and go, man, I don't believe any of this. What I'm gonna ask you to do is I'm just gonna ask you, you got nothing to lose, just to be an honest skeptic and to be able to sit there and go, God, if anything that man is saying, you illuminate my eyes, you make me see, you help me to be able to see that if the stuff that he's saying is true from the Bible that he's preaching, you show me. And I have the confidence that God will show you if you say that from an honest heart. So today is a day of rejoicing, amen, believers? And today is a day of repentance for us to turn and come to believe in the Savior who has come. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you. We thank you, God, for this morning. And Lord, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the goodness of you sending your son, Jesus Christ, here, Lord, to come and to be able to die for us. And God, thank you for coming. And I pray that over Christmas that we will revel in these truths that this will be the greatest Christmas ever because we understand that you are truly the reason for this season. This will be a time of worship for us, worship with our families. It'll be a time of witness to our friends. But God, right now, I just pray that you would move in the hearts of those who are in darkness, who do not believe. God, will you save them? Will you open up their eyes? Will you be the light to show them the way? In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Let's stand together. We're gonna just have a couple moments to be able to respond. I'm gonna be down here. I'd love to be able to talk with you, love to be able to share with you. Um, If you want to pray, love to pray for you, but you just take some time to respond to what the word that you've heard this morning. Go ahead, brother.